welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, good evening, everyone. Welcome along to Gateway this evening. Thank you so much for coming. We so appreciate that you would make time in your busy schedules to come and be with this community. As Anna said, I'm starting a new series this evening. Um, It's entitled Small Groups That Change the World. Um, I'll take the majority of this evening basically just to set this message and this series up, uh, and then over the next couple of weeks we're going to unpack it. But um, I struggled with a title for it because uh, Small Groups That Change the World sounded to me a little bit pretentious, to be honest. And I can imagine a response from any number of people who perhaps, like me, would say something like, change the world as if. Um, You know what, Don, I'm not changing the world. I would settle for some things in my life being changed. So if that sounds like something that you might say or at least think, please don't tune me out just yet. Um, Actually, that's that's a good place to start. It's a good observation. Uh, Perhaps... Changing us as individuals is the best and perhaps the only place to start if you want to see the world changed. Um, Leo Tolstoy, the famous Russian novelist, commented about lots of people who want to change the world and he said, you know, in our world everybody thinks about changing humanity but nobody thinks about changing himself. And the political humorist PJ O'Rourke restated it well when he said everybody wants to save the world but nobody wants to help mum with the dishes. The principles that I want to talk about in this series actually are primarily the means by which we as individuals are changed, and then by God's grace flowing through us, um, the way that societies and cultures can be changed. Now, I know that we've completely given up on the possibility of our culture being changed. We look around and see such degradation. We see such uh, secularization that we just are depressed and feel like we really can't make a difference. Society's problems are so complex, so nuanced, that what we have to offer seems inapplicable. And Christians can feel an overwhelming sense of obsolescence at both a personal and institutional level. This series is going to be about people, just like you and I, who lived in circumstances every bit as complicated and every bit as nuanced as ours, and yet they made a massive difference in their world. So what I plan to do in this series is examine some small groups who came to be what we call a creative minority within the dominant culture that they were found. And that creative minority were able to bring incredible change. Just a little heads up, the three uh, small groups that changed the world that I want to sort of focus on, though there could be perhaps many more, uh, are number one, Daniel and his friends in Babylonian exile, Secondly, the Clapham sect, or the Clapham Circle, or the Clapham Saints, they are variously called. Um, They were a group of aristocratic evangelical Anglicans in England in the 1790s through the 1830s. Now, some of you may never have heard of the Clapham sect, but I'm sure you will have heard of the name William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was probably the leading light, the center of gravity, if you like, of that Clapham sect. And the third group that I want to look at that literally changed the world were a small group of Christians in Germany in the early 1700s that we called the Moravians. So we'll unpack them a little bit as we work our way through the series, but each of those three groups became 
uh, creative minorities. Let me focus on that phrase a little bit, uh, a creative minority. It's not an original phrase. It came from a historian by the name of Arnold Toynbee. Now, Toynbee was a philosopher of history and was doing some research and writing, endeavoring to respond to another influential historian by the name of Oswald Spengler. Now, Spengler wrote about the rise and falls of civilization, and he likened civilizations to living organisms, and he claimed that they had a life cycle. They were born, they grew, they reached maturity, they aged, they declined, and finally they died. And according to Spengler, no exception. Now, Toynbee differed from Spengler in that he thought because societies had a spiritual dimension, a fact that Spengler never considered, it opened up the possibility that the life cycle perhaps was not as fixed as Spengler had thought. That perhaps decline and death weren't inevitable. Perhaps recovery in the face of decline and re recreation or recreation in the face of death were possible if there were present in that society what Toynbee called a creative minority. So his definition of a creative minority was a small group of people who proactively responded to a civilization's crisis and whose response allowed that civilization to grow. Um, author John Tyson, who also writes on this subject, says a creative minority seeks to function in a dominant culture for the purpose of being a redeeming factor within it. In, in my preparation for the series, I read a little bit of material by a brilliant Jewish rabbi called Jonathan Sachs. You're probably familiar with the name uh, Goldman Sachs, the, the banking dynasty. Um, Jonathan Sachs is from that line. And he writes about a creative minority, and he says this, to become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are part. And he goes on to say, demanding and risk-laden choice. Um, Rabbi Sachs, in his writings, suggests that the Jewish people themselves have actually functioned over the last few thousand years as a creative minority within the wider group of humanity. And, and actually, it's a fact that's really hard to argue against. I don't know if you know this, but people of Jewish descent make up 0.2% of the world's population, and yet they have exercised a level and degree of influence upon it that really should be completely unheard of, less than one half of 1% of the world's population. And yet this remarkable creative minority have given rise to some remarkable architects of the modern mind. Think of Spinoza, Marx, Freud, Einstein, Buber, Niles Bohr and Alfred Adler, to name a couple. And if some of you are thinking, who? Well, we'll think pioneers of communism, psychology, physics, and philosophy, and you'll be on the right track. From 1951 through into the 2000s, as I say, Jewish people representing less than one half of 1% of the world's population have won 96 Nobel, Peace Prize, uh, Nobel Prizes in science and literature alone. That's 29% of all of the prizes that have been awarded. Nobel Prizes have been given across a wide field to over 900 people, and over 20% of those who are recipients of those awards have been from this creative minority. That is completely disproportionate, completely unexpected. 
And friends, if science and literature aren't your thing, then think of the impact this Jewish minority, this creative minority, have had in various other fields. Think of music, for example. Let me give you a list of Jewish names in the music field. Now, you, are, you probably won't know them all unless your tastes are very eclectic, but you will have heard of some of them. Think Bert Bacharach, Leonard Bernstein, Yehudi Menuhin, Lenny Kravitz, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley of Kiss fame, Donald Fagan of Steely Dan, Pink, Mark Knopfler, Carol King, Bette Midler, Herb Alpert. Think Bob Dylan, Paul Simon, Art Garfunkel, Barbara Streisand, and Neil Diamond. Throw in Billy Joel, Carl Simon, Helen Reddy, Michael Bolton, Neil Sedaka, and Paul Abdul, just to name a handful. 0.2% of the world's population. If the silver screen is more to your liking, think Steven Spielberg, the Warner Brothers, the Marx Brothers, the Three Stooges, Al Jolson, Danny Kaye, and Jack Benny, and if you're under 50 years of age, you've probably never heard of any of those names. But those of you who are younger than 50, think Natalie Portman, Scarlett Johansson, Myla Kunis, Jake Guilenhow, add in Dustin Hoffman, Daniel Day-Lewis, Harrison Ford, Adam Sadler, Woody Allen, Paul Newman, Peter Sellers, Kate Hudson, Jack Black, Daniel Radcliffe, Kirk and Michael Douglas, Lisa Kudrow of Friends fame, Goldie Horn, Edward G. Robertson, Billy Crystal, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy from Star Trek, Jerry Steinfeld, Elizabeth Taylor, Sean Penn, Sylvester Stallone, and it goes on and on, all from 0.2% of the world's population. How is this possible? Now, some people go on and just simply say, and I think simplistically say, oh, well, it's just a God thing. Now, I'm not suggesting that God's not involved in this, but I suspect that at least what's happening in part is that this is a people who over multiple thousands of years have learned to be a creative minority within the larger human community. Thomas Cahill wrote a best-selling book entitled The Gift of the Jews, and it was subtitled How a Tribe of Desert Nomads Changed the Way Everyone Thinks and Feels. This is a creative minority that have done exactly that. They have done that, they do that. How is it possible that such a small group of people change the way the world thinks and feels? And that's the issue that I want to explore, because creative minorities have the power to do that. A quote that I want to give you now, and I suspect that I will use probably week by week, is a quote from a cultural anthropologist, a very famous woman called Margaret Mead. And she said this, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Such a powerful quote. Nearly, it all, nearly always, it seems, history is moved from the margins. Very rarely, history is created by the crowds, by the majority. So in this series, what I want to do is consider the whole idea that we as God's people are called to be a creative minority. And I want to look at how a thoughtful, committed group of Christians can and have at times changed the world. Now, as I said to you earlier, the scriptural example that I want to use is Daniel's friends in, uh, Daniel and his friends in Babylonian exile. And perhaps over the next couple of weeks, as a point of homework, you might like to read the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, because it kind of fills in the background to the story we're going to be looking at. Um, by way of background, the northern, king, the northern kingdom of Israel, it had been divided for a, a period and they had civil war. The northern kingdom, made up of 10 tribes, had Assyrian captivity. 
150 years later, the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, also went into captivity. The year was 597 BC, and they went into Babylonian captivity. Nebuchadnezzar and his armies came and sacked Jerusalem. They tore the city and the temple down, and in doing so, really tore Israel's heart out. So Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2 reads like this. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon advanced against Jerusalem and laid it under siege. Now the Lord delivered King Jehoiakim of Judah into his power along with some of the vessels of the temple of God, and he brought them to the land of Babylonia, to the temple of his God, and he put the vessels into the treasury of his God. So for the Jewish people, the unthinkable had happened. Uh, the temple had been torn down. The city had been sacked. It was a time of incredibly violent upheaval and massive cultural change for God's people. The sacred vessels had been, had been car- carried off, and now these people, God's people, are captives in an idolatrous and foreign culture in Babylon. And what I want you to do with me is make a connection between their world and ours, because a connection is there to be made require a great deal of imagination to see that we too live in times of incredible upheaval and um, massive cultural change, although thank God up to this point at least without the same level of violence. But, but we Christians over the last four or five decades have watched the Western world change dramatically. The Judeo-Christian values that we thought were an indissoluble part of Western civilization that we regarded as sacrosanct have largely been overthrown. We as believers today find ourselves exiles in a culture that we no longer recognize or identify with. How do you respond when you are a small minority in a dominant culture that is now very, very different from the way you are, very, very different in its thought patterns from from yours? Well, we know from the study of history how God's people have responded over the years to circumstances exactly like this. And there are a, a, a small number of very predictable responses. The first is retrenchment where the small minority reject the dominant culture and withdraw into protective enclaves, interacting with the dominant culture only as they have to. Think Amish, or in Jesus' time, the Essene community who withdrew from mainstream Judaism out into the desert regions of the Dead Sea to wait for the Messiah. Now, the reality is it can be a powerful strategy and it can strengthen the group, but if you take the option of retrenchment and segregation, the price you pay is a complete loss of influence in the wider culture. The second often trodden way of responding is relinquishment, where we actually accommodate and open ourselves up to the dominant culture and effectively we become Babylonians. And over the course of history, this has been the pathway of religious liberalism. And history tells us that if we go down this pathway, we will gradually be reduced to being the cuddly ancillaries of fashionable and lefty causes or simply become the passive deliverers of state-funded programs. The third is radicalization. In this mode, we resist the dominant culture, sometimes violently. In Jesus' day, this was the pathway taken by the zealots, where as often as possible, they would... Uh, They would murder Roman uh, authorities, Roman soldiers, uh, Roman functionaries. They they were violent in their radicalization. We see it today in varied groups, from radical Islam to the radical neo-Nazi right. 
The fourth possibility and the one that I want to consider is the possibility that we might be able to become a creative minority. And that's the option exemplified by Daniel and his friends. How did Daniel and his friends, who were very young at this time, probably in their, um, their, their teens, maybe mid to late teens, how did they know to take that route? How did they know to become a creative minority? Well, I think we have a clue from the scriptures. Jeremiah, the prophet, had predicted, he ministered in this time and had predicted the captivity. Much of his ministry had been about calling God's people to repent and uh, to possibly change the fact that God's wrath was about to fall. They didn't repent and God's wrath did fall. And after the exiles had been carried away to Babylon, Jeremiah writes them a letter. Now, I don't know what you would write if you were Jeremiah. I think I'd be incredibly tempted to write, I told you so. But Jeremiah didn't write that. What he wrote was entirely different and was, in fact, massively counterintuitive. And it's really no exaggeration to say that the letter he wrote uh, to these exiles changed the course, at the very least, of Jewish history, if not Western history as a whole. And this is how the letter goes. The Lord God of Israel, who rules over all, says to those that he sent into exile to Babylon from Jerusalem, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters and allow your daughters to get married so that they too can have sons and daughters. Grow in number, do not dwindle away. Work to see that the city where I sent you as exiles enjoys peace and prosperity. Lord for it, for as it prospers, you will prosper. Now, this is so counterintuitive. Essentially what Jeremiah is saying here that it's possible for these exiles to not only survive in Babylon, but actually to thrive. Their identity intact, their appetite for life undiminished, to be contributors to the good of the wider society, all the while praying for it, on, on praying for that society to God and, and intervening on their behalf. So what Jeremiah is doing here is introducing into history the highly idea of being a creative minority. Now, perhaps because of distance, both in time and, and geography, for us to realize how revolutionary that idea was for these exiles. Up until this point, religions were inextricably tied to geography. They were politically, culturally, linguistically linked with defined spaces. So every geographical area had its God. And if a people were defeated in war and their land was occupied by their conquerors, then their gods were regarded as defeated and they were replaced by the gods of the invaders. Jeremiah sees something very, very different. And it's a unique configuration of ideas that Jeremiah holds that make his vision possible. There are three things that Jeremiah sees that many people of his time didn't. And the first was, he saw, he saw God as one. He was a monotheist. There was only one God, and he's present everywhere. And he could be accessed anywhere, even by the rivers of Babylon. Ezekiel, by the way, was a contemporary of Jeremiah, ministered to the same people, but he was in Babylon. So Jeremiah's in the, uh, the whole Holy Land. 
Ezekiel is being carried away captive, but they, but they are contemporaries. Ezekiel is saying the same thing through his prophecies, and he says this in chapter 11. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I have removed them far away from among the nations and have dispersed them among the countries, I have been a little sanctuary for them among the lands where they have gone. Ezekiel is saying, God isn't back there, he's here. And although the temple has been destroyed there, he will be a sanctuary, a temple for you here. You know, when you read the book of Ezekiel, if you start the first couple of chapters, they you're seeing a vision of the glory of God, and it's a kind of a stunning description. I mean, he's seeing wheels within wheels and lights and eyes, and you kind of think, my goodness, what's this guy been smoking, you know? It's, it's, it is pretty weird. But people, it wasn't that weird, because they had experienced the glory of God in, in the temple, in eras gone by. You know, the staggering thing for the people who are listening to Ezekiel's description of the glory of God is not the, the factors related to the glory, but the fact that that glory is appearing in Babylon. They, they had experienced the glory in the temple, but here, Ezekiel is describing the manifestation of God's glory, and it's not where they thought it should be. It's in this place of captivity. And both Jeremiah and Ezekiel are trying to get across to these people, there's one God, and we're all, and he's everywhere, and he can be accessed anywhere. So Jeremiah is a monotheist. Secondly, he has a profound belief in Yahweh's sovereign control of history. He rules in the affairs of men, which of course is the main theme of Daniel's book. It turns out that Yahweh was actually responsible for the Babylonian captivity. Babylon was simply an instrument in his hands to punish his wayward people. And in Jeremiah 51, God says, you Babylon are my hammer my weapon of war. I'll use you to smash godless nations, use you to knock kings. I'll use you, I'll use you, I'll use you, this passage goes on. Just an instrument in my hands. Not only is God over all, accessed everywhere, but he's in sovereign control over all. And it seems then that people could, for example, suffer defeat and yet keep their faith intact. The third thing is that Israel's God is a faithful covenant-keeping God. In spite of the fact that God's people were being severely disciplined, God would not break his promises. And Jeremiah and the other prophets are a voice of both warning and hope. The prophetic voice always is a warning, but always laced with hope. And only that hope can sustain a minority in exile. Because of the configuration of those three ideas, what Jeremiah is saying to this exile people, is it's, it's, it's possible to be a minority living in a country whose religion, culture, legal, and education systems are not your own, and nevertheless, you can sustain your identity, you can live your faith, and you can actually contribute to the common good of the wider society, exactly as Jeremiah said. You can be a creative minority. It's not an easy task. Remember, Rabbi Sachs said, it is a difficult, risk-laden exercise because it demands a com complex um, finessing of identities, a willingness to live with a degree of cognitive dissonance where you're battling all kinds of temptations in terms of what can I do, what's appropriate. Um, as a believer in this situation, how should I function? How do I live and practice my faith when I am surrounded by powerful, seductive idols? 
Jeremiah is saying it's possible. It's not easy, but it's possible. So Daniel and his friends are a study in what we might call the sanctified subversion of the creative minority, where they maintain strong links with the dominant culture, yet they stay true to their faith, at times judiciously, discreetly resisting the Babylonian culture. It's really interesting to read those first chapters of Daniel and find that Daniel and his friends say yes to some things and no to one thing. They say yes to three things before they, know, they say no to one thing. I think, you know, if you went out into our culture today and asked about Christians, they would say there are people who say no to everything. People know us for what we are against. But Daniel and his friends said, three to, said yes to three things. They said yes to a pagan education. They said yes to a career in politics. They said yes to a change of name. Give wisdom to the wise. You don't have to die on every cross. A wise old Quaker once said that. You know, not every discussion in your workplace or your classroom is a hill worth dying on. Now, there might be some hills that are worth dying for and on, but not every office discussion has to to lead to a Roman Colosseum. You know, I, I know a Christian gentleman who made a huge issue in his workplace about what radio station was playing at the morning tea break. Guys in the place had set it on a, you know, an FM station, and every morning, without fail, he would come in and make a point of changing the radio from the FM station to, on which it was set to Radio Rima, and then would turn it up. And he thought he was making a point and, uh, you know, a, a stand for righteousness. Um, I don't know, but if I'd have worked there, I think I would have been very amenable and easily persuaded by the pagans to feed him to the lions. I just think, you know, some. some Some things are not worth dying for, and that surely is one. Daniel and his friends say yes to three things and no to one thing. The the thing they say no to is partaking from the king's table. And I'm sure that you're aware that um, it was much more an issue than just simply the food that that they were eating. Meals in that cultural context were often a way to affirm covenant commitments. When you made covenant, you broke bread, you ate together, and regularly you would do that to affirm that original uh, point of allegiance. Well, um, the, the king's table was a point of ultimate allegiance, and this creative minority weren't prepared to cross that line. So the issue of the king's table and later on in the story, bowing down to the golden statue that the king had erected, were places that these young men drew a line in the sand and said, can't do that, won't do that. And that's a very real challenge for most of us. I suspect that for every Christian who draws foolish lines, like my friend who you know, fiddled with the radio, there are 10 of us who are tempted to draw no lines at all because we lack the courage to do so. Being a creative minority requires both wisdom and courage. In this series, I want to look at what are the characteristics of these kinds of creative minorities. A lot of study has been done into these small groups that literally have changed their world. And as people have studied, whether it be the Clapham sect or the Moravians or, you know, whoever, numerous other groups, there are common characteristics that keep coming up in groups that change the world. Now, various researchers have different names to describe them and and possibly different numbers of factors in their list, but you can boil them down to between four and six. 
And I'm going to list these ones right now as we come to a close. And it's these factors that in the coming weeks we're going to look at. If we're going to be a creative minority, then history and study would suggest these things need to be part of our lives. In fact, I'd go further than that. And I'd say, if you want to change your world, starting with this piece of earth, then these are things that you need to be thinking about. Number one, creative minorities exhibit a deep commitment to a particular narrative. Now, if you don't understand what that means, don't worry, because I will unpack it in a couple of weeks' time. But, but just simply say they are committed to a particular worldview. Secondly, creative minorities are covenantal communities. Thirdly, creative minorities innovate new practices. They're very creative. Creative minorities are ethical communities. Creative minor uh, communities live under a distinct sense of authority. And creative communities participate in a wider community with a profound sense of purpose and mission. So there's a handful of things that these creative minorities seem to exhibit. And over the next few weeks, as we look at those communities uh, and creative minorities, I, I want to unpack them in terms of what that might look like for your life what that might look like for mine, what that might look like for ours. Musicians, would you come? And I want to finish by quoting Karl Barth, who is probably the 20th century's most notable and influential theologian, and he said this, the church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. Dissimilar and yet not judgmental. Radically dissimilar and yet full of hope. I wonder that the church, could we be that kind of community? Could we be radically dissimilar and yet not a judgmental community who waves its bony finger and says, thou shalt not? A community that can say yes more than they can say no, but when they need to say no, they have the courage and wisdom to say it in ways that stand the world up and make them look and say, what is, it about? what is it about those people? How do they do that? The Clapham sect, the Clapham circle, William Wilberforce, you will most probably know him for the man that, um, that initiated the ending of slavery. And uh, his story is amazing. And yet he was the most winsome of people. He was not one of those bony-fingered prophets who went around souring every conversation he entered into. People absolutely loved him. He was one of the most popular men in all of England. He started a society, we'll talk about him later, and I've got off my subject and onto about two weeks since, but he started a, sub, he started a society, he started many, but one of them was, uh, was about cruelty to animals. One day him and his son were walking up uh, the highway to their home and there was a guy who was beating the life out of his donkey or horse. And Wilberforce, who was a very small man, went over to this towering man who was beating his horse and said, sir, sir, stop it. And he turned and, you know, I mean, you know, who do you think you are interrupting me? He's fuming with anger. And somebody whispered, it's Wilberforce. And he dropped his stick, stood back and said, I'll never beat my horse again, sir. People respected him. They loved him. And the church could be that kind of community again, I think. That's our challenge. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.